church that meets on Sunday. We, uh, we're a 24-7, 365 church. So the information regarding those community groups, where to find them, where to go, is on RedeemerVV.com, or you can go up to one of those guys or come up to me, because uh, we really want uh, to be a church about being in community with one another. Finally, we have a, uh, well, actually, we'll go ahead and we'll stop there. I know there's a Yeti meeting coming up for youth group, um, and that is on the website. Terry Carter is not here today, but she's going to be running that uh, time for our youth middle school and high school to get together. So take a look uh, for that for your uh, middle school and high school students. Should be a good time. Whenever Terry's involved, it's a good time. I can tell you that. So, all right. Let me, uh, Leon. Can I borrow your phone? Mm -hmm. uh, because I've got a little wind up here. It's, it's, you know, I'm not used to being high in this rarefied air. <laughs> I know. It's. Per I, I designed it exactly that way. All right. Let's look at our scripture that can be found in your bulletin. This is Philippians 1, 1 through 12. Uh, we continue a sermon series called Greatest Hits of Redeemer. Uh, in the 10 years that I've been here, I've probably preached about 450 sermons. And so I thought, we'd, let's take a moment and go back and look through some of the sermons that impacted you greatly and uh, preach a couple of those. So this is Philippians 1, 12. This was preached in 2014. This was actually the first sermon I preached uh, as some of you know, our oldest son passed away and, and died in a very sudden way. And um, so it took about six weeks off. And as it so happened, I was starting a new sermon series called The Joyful Christian. And uh, so this is the first sermon that I preached when I came back uh, from that hiatus. So this is Philippians 1, 1 through 12. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine. For you are all making my prayer with joy. For you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This is God's Word. It's very fitting that I would preach this sermon after uh, the death of our oldest son because it entitled the sermon series called The Joyful Christian. Because it asks the question, can one find joy in the midst of suffering and the midst of sorrow? Well, it would seem that Paul has done so. But before we do that, I want to make a special announcement. There's something I've been working on for these last four or five years. It's, it's a book. I did not realize, you may have not realized that I am an author. And so this is a book that I've been writing. It's totally done. It's finally ready, or at least the first installment. This is called A Brief History of Me. 
by Carlos Rodriguez. This is years one through four, by the way. And we begin with chapter one, my conception, which is extremely powerful. Maybe it was not an immaculate conception, but nonetheless, it was a wonderful conception that brought me into being. And I, I've written about myself in this tome of knowledge, and I'm not even, I'm, I'm not just an author, I'm a, I'm a poet as well. And so I wrote a poem about myself. If you could just hold that for me, thank you. That's my publicist, Lee Ellen. <laughs> it's titled, Oh, How I Love Me. Oh, I love me, I love me, I'm wild about myself. I love me, I love me, me pictures on my shelf. You may not think me looks so good, but me thinks I look fine. Notice the elegant prose. It's grand when I look in the glass and know that I'm all mine. I love me, I love me, and my love doesn't bore. Day by day, in every way, I loves me more and more. I take me to a quiet place, I put me arms around me waist. If me gets fresh, me slaps me face. I'm wild about myself. Oh, I love me. I hope you enjoyed that. You know, it's the nature of the world that everyone looks to themselves. We're, we have a self-interest. We're looking to better our own circumstances. If, if you doubt me in this, whenever you get a pack of pictures, if anyone still gets a pack of pictures anymore, who's the first person you go and look for in the pictures? Well, it's me. And I think because we have such a, a self-interest and uh, it's the nature of the world, I think that's why Paul's letter to the church in the town of Philippi is so strange. You see, you need to understand Paul's situation. He is in a Roman prison in Rome, and he is uh, writing to a church that he helped found, uh, which he started, by the way, when he was in jail in Philippi. If you'll remember, he was in jail... And, and the doors flew open and God released him. And the Philippian jailer came to Christ and that's how the church started. But Paul has continued to preach the gospel uh, under much hardship. He's in a Roman prison. Uh, the conditions are deplorable. He's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. And he's writing this letter to the Philippians. He's awaiting trial, and it's quite possible that he is going uh, to be killed, to be uh, sentenced to execution. And yet this letter is not of dejection. It's not of despondency. Rather, it's about joy. Indeed, 16 times in this letter, he talks about joy. Verse 4, I always pray with joy. Verse 18, I rejoice. 18 again, I will continue to rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 18, be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 3, 1, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, we have to ask the question, nobody rejoices in suffering, do they, while they're in prison? And yet it appears that that's exactly what Paul is doing in the midst of his suffering. When you're suffering and having difficulty, you don't think about other people in our natural state. And yet Paul is joy-focused and others-focused. There's a joy in Paul's heart. Because joy is one of the hallmarks of Christianity. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord 
is our strength. And it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. So one of the marks that accompanies being a Christian and following Christ is joy. C.S. Lewis said, we all know the proof of joy. It tells others that what we have satisfies the heart. Have you ever run into or met someone where you can sense a joy in their heart? I've met many of them there, in fact, in this room. But one that comes to mind was our oldest son, Mark Rodriguez. There was a joy in our oldest son's life. He worshipped the Lord and he loved people and he loved life. And it came, the joy in his heart came from the Lord and it couldn't help but flow out into his life. So how about you and how about me? Is there a joy in your life as well? Often Christians cannot live with joy in their heart. We're going to talk about how we change that. But for Paul, the joy in his heart is greater than his circumstances. Because it's not from without, it's rather from within. This book of Philippians is written for those uh, people who are struggling in the midst of difficulties to learn how to have joy. And Paul wants to explain how. And so he gives a series of spiritual secrets. We're only going to have time to go over one today. There's one every chapter. If you're interested in seeing this series, it's online. You can go to our website. And it's called The Joyful Christian is the series. But I'm going to tell you this first spiritual truth. But I'm not going to give away uh, right away. Instead, I want to bring up another word that tells us what the secret is. Because there's another word that Paul uses 16 times in the book of Philippians. He uses joy 16 times, but he uses another word. And that word is mind. He uses the word mind 10 times, the word think 5 times, and the word remember 1 time. In other words, the secret of Christian joy is found in the way the believer thinks, in his attitudes. As Proverbs 23.7 says, as the, a person thinks, so they are. And so the book of Philippians is a Christian psychology book founded on Bible doctrine. It's not a shallow self-help book, but rather explains what we must do, how we must think, if we are to experience joy in a world filled with trouble. So what is this first truth, this state of mind that we must have? Here's uh, some of the hints to it. Paul says in uh, uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. The secret to finding joy is finding it in Jesus, not in our circumstances. In fact, so focus on the Lord is point number one, is, is not point number one, but um, it's not only focused, being focused, but it's also being exclusive. Listen to chapter 1, verse 20. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to live is Christ. And to die 
is gained. What Paul is saying is that his mind, his thinking is focused and exclusive on Jesus Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul has a purpose for living and it's not himself. It's not his condition. It's not his circumstances. It's that Christ would be lifted up. Paul has found his life in Christ. So much so that he now no longer needs to keep searching in other places. Look at the way he starts out this letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This word servants actually uh, would be more accurately translated bond slaves. This is someone who has volunteered to become a slave of another person for life because they want to serve them out of gladness of their own heart. Paul and Timothy are bond slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that the place where you can find grace, the place where you can find peace, is not in circumstances, certainly not in this Roman jail where he is, but rather in the Lord Jesus Christ. The spiritual truth that Paul is exhibiting to us and wants to communicate is the word single-mindedness. Paul is a single-minded Christian. Now we know the difference between single-mindedness and double-mindedness, don't we? Single-mindedness is when you're focused on just one thing and one thing above everything else. But when you're double-minded, you're equally focused on two things. So much so that you can't focus on either of them. Paul is singularly focused on Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who has rescued him, who has redeemed him from the pit, from hell. It was Paul who belonged on the cross for his sin. And, in each one, and it's each one of us who deserves the cross and hell because we've all rebelled against God. And yet through the grace given in Jesus Christ, Christ came and got up on the cross in our place that we might instead receive the righteous edict and verdict of God to be found righteous in His sight, to be called sons and daughters of God. The grace of God has captivated Paul's heart and he's single-minded, focused on one thing, Jesus Christ. The reason that this letter is filled with joy is because Paul has found what he's looking for. Or maybe I should say who he's looking for. And so he does not see Christ in light of his circumstances. He sees his circumstances in light of Christ. I'll say that again. He does not see Christ in light of his circumstances, where he is and what's going on. But rather, he sees his circumstances in light of Christ. Because he's not living to simply enjoy his circumstances. He's living to serve and enjoy Jesus Christ. I've heard it said, never trust a God who cannot satisfy you in a jail cell. And it's true. If Christ is enough, then He really is enough, isn't He? What if you and I lived that way? 
What if we decided, like Paul, to put all of our eggs in one basket? To not live double-minded or triple-minded, quadruple-minded lives. But to put Christ preeminent above all. To put all of our hopes and our dreams and expectations on Him. See, our temptation is not to be single-minded. To hedge our bets. We're like putting our bets on a roulette wheel and we choose several because who knows where that ball is going to land on. But the way to win big is to put everything on one thing and to make sure that it's the right thing. Paul has made his decision. Is this a risky decision? Absolutely. He's putting everything on Christ. But Christ has given everything for us. Should He not expect everything from us as well? Because heaven knows how to put a proper price on its goods. And so Paul has recognized that there's only one thing worth focusing on. And it's Him. I remember when I was probably a second or third grader, I was at an all-boys school. They wouldn't put me with those other people. Uh, <laughs> And this guy came along who was older, he was in fifth grade, and he had a magnifying glass. And, and, and it seemed like the thing was about the size of a dinner plate. Okay, it was a giant magnifying glass. I didn't know what it was. I was just a kid. And he said, hey, come here. Put your shoe right there. I said, okay. <laughs> Let me show you something. And so he took this magnifying glass and he put it on the shoe, but he put it at an angle and the beam was kind of wide. But then he said, watch this. And slowly that dot got tighter and tighter and tighter. And instantly when it became a small tight dot, my shoe began to smoke. <laughs> and my foot began to get very, very hot. And I learned for the first time the power of focus. So take a moment and look at your own life. Is there single-mindedness for Christ above all? Is there focus? What is it that you're seeking to magnify? There's nothing worse than being a double-minded Christian because you don't experience the joy of Jesus Christ. So what else is vying for attention of the top spot of your heart? Jesus and my career. Jesus and my possessions. Jesus and that person. That's a recipe for despair. If you're not a Christian, the world is saying just find whatever you want and put your focus on that and you will be happy. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because there is only one who can satisfy. The one we were made in the image of. The one who redeemed us and can give us life. Jesus Christ. So change your song. It's not, I love me, I love me, I'm wild about myself. If Paul was singing that song, he would say, I love Christ. I love Christ, I'm wild about Him. I love Christ, I love Christ, His picture's on my shelf. You may not think Christ looks so good, but me thinks Christ looks fine. It's grand when I look in the glass and know that Christ's all mine. We must recalibrate our magnifying glass. Because the one thing in life that we do get to choose 
is who we give our heart and our hope to. Paul gave his heart to the gospel and it changed everything. Because a single mind devoted to Christ helps us to experience the joy that we were meant for. But this brings me to my second point. In a very strange way, being single-mindedly focused helps you to become others-focused for the right reasons. Notice this letter's all about Christ, but it's also about the Philippian church, isn't it? Normally when you have someone who's focused on one thing, that's all, but this has opened up Paul's eyes. It's given him the ability to love and to experience the fellowship of the gospel. Notice how he starts out this letter. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Philippians, always in every prayer of mine for you and all, making my prayer with joy. Paul is giving thanks and he's remembering them. Always, it's saying, in every prayer he's praying with joy, not only for his own heart, but for the Philippian church. This letter should be saying something like, this is really hard. I'm having a rough time. I'm not sure how much longer I can make it. And yet Paul is in this prison giving thanks for this church hundreds of miles away, remembering them, praying for them, and not for himself. Why? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There's a fellowship that comes with a group of people who are single-mindedly focused on Jesus Christ. Because this thing, following Christ, is bigger than just one person. The word fellowship, koinonia, is the word. It means communion. It's a holy communion between people. By putting Christ first in his heart, it's given him an internal affinity to other believers who are also seeking to follow Jesus Christ. Through looking at this passage, we can see several things about this communion, this fellowship, this partnership in the gospel that Paul has. Number one, it's spiritual. It's deeper than simply being together and seeing one another. It's a bond that they share that transcends time and space. There's a oneness that is occurring between these believers. It's spiritual, but it's also affectionate. Verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He has this great affection for Christ above all, but it's given him affection for other Christians. And it's sustaining Paul in the midst of his imprisonment. Have you felt the power of the body of Christ and the fellowship? My wife and I and our family have. We were sustained by you in the midst of the loss of our son because of the fellowship of the gospel that transcends time and space, that brings affection. This fellowship is particular. It's only for Christians. It's a oneness that can only be found in the body of Christ. Nothing else can come as close to it because it's spiritual. It's brought by God. It's eternal. It's shared by all of the believers from the beginning since Christ began the church to now. And it's transcendent. 
Notice what Paul says in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Somehow they are with him in that Philippian jail. They're partakers of God's grace, even though they're not there physically. They are building up one another, strengthening one another in grace, both in imprisonment. The Philippians are strengthening and, and giving Paul encouragement and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What's giving Paul the strength to witness to that Roman guard who he's chained next to, to the people who are mistreating him? It's those other believers in Christ who are partakers with him of grace. They're standing alongside of him. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is a bond between believers that is intensified when we are single-minded for Christ. The church is different than the Kiwanis Club or Rotary or the Water Buffaloes. Remember the Water Buffaloes and the Flintstone, by the way? What a great... I always wanted one of those hats, right? Because we were meant to be one. Many people have a version of church in their head that is not the version of what Christ has meant it to be. And you can be in the church and not recognize it so you don't benefit from it. But God has given us each a source of strength in this church. A source of synergy. A source of power for joy when we do find despair and grow despondent. The question is, will we embrace the fellowship or run away from it? Have you ever wondered why it is that we are speaking English and not German? How it is that we ended up winning World War II? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's due to 15 sixteenths of an inch. What do you mean? Well, in 1842, Imperial Russia had to choose the gauge for their railroads. All of Europe had standardized, the Germans and the Austrians had gotten everyone to standardize their railroad gauge. It was 4 feet 11 and 1 16 inches, but you already knew that, of course. And so they said to the Russians, standardize as well, we will all be as one. But the Russians, they were a wily uh, bunch of people, and they said, I could see how this could go poorly for us at some time. And so they decided to standardize their rail gauges at 5 feet, not 4 feet, 11 and 1 16 inch. And so when the Germans, with their overpowering military force, began to invade with the Blitzkrieg, and Western Europe pretty much fell, they knew that they not only had to win to the West, but they had to win to the East to dominate the world. And so as they raced toward Russia, the first thing that Russia did was they burnt all their railroad cars. Because the, uh, the German cars could only go so far. And then from there on, if there were no railroad cars, they were going to have to hoof it to Moscow in order to win. Well, they never made it to Moscow. 
And if you look at the attrition of their troops and what it took out of the German army in trying for the conquest of Russia, that really was the reason that they lost the war. And we speak English and not German. Now why am I talking about railroad gauges? The reason I'm talking about railroad gauges is what you can see in our world today. Everybody's running on different gauges. We can't seem to get together with one another, to be harmonious with one another. There's conflict and strife and it comes up again and again and again. But what Christ does in the life of Christians is he standardizes the railroad gauges from one heart to another. He allows me to get close to you and you to get close to me. <clears throat> so we can come alongside and give encouragement and challenge and love and fellowship and closeness and intimacy and all the things that we need as we go through this journey called life. If you are not a Christian, this is the miracle of what Christ can do in your life. Standardize your gauge with a whole other group of people so that you can actually know people and be known by them. If you're a Christian, your gauge is the same to other people's hearts, but it makes no difference if you don't use it. And so like Paul, we can unabashedly open our hearts to allow people in and to unabashedly love others and to give our hearts of others. Let people into your life. That's really what this church is all about. It's all about a standardized gauge. It's all about loving one another. It's all about encouraging one another, helping one another to remember the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. You may be hurting right now. Open your heart. It's so easy to close the garage doors and wall yourself off from the world and suffer in silence. But that's not what we were made for. We have the great privilege of coming into one another's life as the Philippians came into Paul's life to love him, to encourage him, to pray for him. Let me give you three particular things you can do to participate in the fellowship of the gospel. Number one, we see that Paul has the Philippians on his mind. Verse 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of you, of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Even though Paul is in this Roman prison, the Philippians are on his mind. How are they doing? Are they growing in Christ? Are they growing in their love for one another? Are they sharing the gospel? Do we have one another on each other's mind? You may be new to Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and we're glad you're here. And we hope that God continues to bring you to this fellowship. But we're more than simply the Water Buffalo Club. We're a group of people that comes together, that lives together, that encourages, that shares, that hopes in sorrow and in joy. And that means having one another on my mind. We must think of one another. We must get close to them. Hear their stories. 
take part in them. Think good thoughts about them. Like Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, beget, will take it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. When you're on somebody's mind, you call them. You text them. You invite them to lunch. I was just thinking about you. How are you doing? To participate in the fellowship of the gospel is to have others on your mind. But it's also to have them in your heart. Notice verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has them in their heart. You know, we need to be loved. And we get to love. Many people feel unloved. I would hope in our church that this is not a place where you feel unloved and feel alone. When we have others in our heart, we can speak into their lives and they can listen. You know, our oldest son, Mark, was so good at this. We had lots of people who came up to, up to us after he died, parents, and they would say, you know, my child was brand new to Norfolk Christian School. But when they would be walking down the hall and feel like they didn't know anyone, there was this kid who smiled, who came up alongside them, who asked them their name, who wanted to know how they were doing today. There was a bond of affection and fellowship that Mark had that was contagious, that allowed him to cross the gauge. You're in my mind, you're in my heart, and finally, you're in my prayers. Verse 9. Paul's prayer in prison for the Philippians. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's a great privilege to pray for one another. The beauty of the single-minded Christian is that they're so others-focused. It's ironic. But that's what mature love is. Praying for one another. I pray for each of you every week, by the way. It's 135 of you. It takes a while. But it's worth it. Because I have you in my heart. I have you in my mind. And I have you in my prayers. Paul has given us a spiritual secret to conclude. Single-mindedness. Separate the wheat from the chaff. Because heaven knows how to put a proper price on its goods. Paul has chosen Christ and everything else is a distant second. Let it be so for you. Whatever it is that has to go. And you will find as you live out the single-minded life that you will see others for the first time. And you will have them in your heart, in your mind, and in your prayers. Because a single mind totally devoted to Christ helps us to become totally devoted to others. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are worth everything. You're worth all of our heart, all of our time, all of our affections, all of our hopes, all of our dreams. You're worth life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. God, I pray that we would 
in looking at Paul's life, make the same decision that to live as Christ and to die is gain. And we would put you first on our shelf. And God, open our hearts as you've standardized our gauges that we might encourage one another, love one another with your love, that the world might see and know that you are the answer, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Um, we uh, uh, normally uh, enter into a time of offering. Uh, we have a basket that's available. I think it's right here. And so if you do want to give an offering to Redeemer Church, uh, uh, that is, uh, offering is used uh, to run the church, to support our missionaries and the work of the gospel. If you are new to our church, don't feel compelled to give. Uh, but as the Lord uh, leads you, because the scriptures say that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Uh, we're not going to give communion. We're going to have one more song and then we're going to go ahead and eat. But let's pray for the offering and uh, let's pray for the meal as well. Uh, in fact, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, 